Hey there, podcast listeners. Uh, doing a little video intro to this one. Uh, going to try and add a bit more video to to things over the next few episodes that are going to drop. Uh, got a special one for you all today. Caught up with Shane Britton from Nomad Bodyboards. Uh, Shane and I go way back. He was one of my kind of first sponsors um, and definitely helped me along the way in the early stages of my career. Uh, Nomad celebrated 20 years of existence in bodyboarding this year so I thought that it would be cool to get in touch catch up pick his brain about you know what were the challenges along the way uh, his current kind of take on the the state of bodyboarding and all those things um, a pretty good conversation it's um, probably one of the first times I've had someone who's a specific kind of industry figure on the podcast and um, yeah a lot of different kind of angles to take that and definitely feel like there's some interesting stuff here for anyone to get out of so um, yeah enjoy this podcast enjoy this video if you watch it uh, or just enjoy the audio version if that's the way you listen uh, those on the audio won't see this beautiful poster behind me but I reckon there's a few of you out there who listen to this who probably have one yourselves thanks for tuning in again um, well, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Um, in the context, it would have been great to have your brother Mark here to to celebrate the kind of twenty years of the business and and the brand and everything like that. But um, we're in the middle of the COVID nineteen crisis, so how, what's the what's kind of a bit of the daily disruption about like that at the moment in Melbourne, like where, where you guys are or Victoria generally? What is, what is it that you got to kind of abide by? Um, just so the listener can maybe understand the situation. Yeah, yeah. In Melbourne at the moment, we're under stage four restrictions, uh, which basically means we're not allowed to travel 5K from home in any given circumstance except for work. Mm -hmm. um, if we're at work, we have to basically wear masks all the time. I'm at my mm. work now. I don't have to wear a mask basically because Mark's not here, so I'm the only person here. So mm -hmm. I don't have to wear a mask as my property type of thing so mm -hmm. but if he was here we'd have to be wearing masks and yeah so it's pretty tough you can go out for an, only an hour a day exercise that's yeah. crazy yeah it's pretty and it's been like that like we've had we've been in it for three weeks we've got three weeks to go mm. and right to the start of that three weeks we were in stage three for two weeks mm. prior to that which we're, we're already pretty strict so i haven't been out to go surfing for five six weeks now mm, and uh, with another three weeks to go jesus okay well that's pretty full on i mean it must be a bit of a challenge i mean in terms of running the business itself though is there a bit of a crew down there in the warehousing side of things that you need to kind of keep distance from as well or is it pretty much a two-man show Still no we keep you guys. It, we've always kept it tight yeah. um, mark and i have always been pretty self-efficient that way um yep. we've run um yeah, sort of done everything ourselves the whole time. So oh, really, so there's never been a bigger team than just you two getting this brand. Um, we do have help, outside help at times. Um, yeah, definitely in terms of um, some designing at times. We've had outside yeah. help. Um, you know, yeah, design in particular, um, board shaping, all that sort of stuff. We've had a lot of yeah. help. We've got, a, we've got a good team around us, but generally here at the office and warehouse, it's just the two of us. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. Hey, um, there's a bit of a tapping sound coming through on your end, I think, a, a bit. Is there something operating there? or? I have a heater under the desk. Is that it? Is it turning its, its head or something like that? <laughs> yeah. I just want to see if it's something that we can get out of it because the, the listeners will kill me. That's it. What was that? That was the heater. Oh, no. Are you going to freeze now? It's heater, man. Oh, no. It's about three degrees in the office. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's just see how we go for a sec. Enjoying the uh, creature comforts. Yeah. Oh, no. I think this noise is still there, actually. So it's not the heater. It's just kind of in the background. Well, what that you noise. Two heaters. Let's see what that one is. That might be the other heater. Oh, it's like some grinding sound. Oh, it's like a little tap. Yeah. One of those, yeah, wall heaters. Maybe that was it. Uh, it's still going, though. What is it? I'll edit this bit yeah, out. I'll have to cool down. 
Oh, okay. No worries. Well, let's just let's just carry on then. I can try and edit it out in the end. Um, so it's been a two man show from the very beginning. I guess like in discussion, you know, of this podcast, I want to kind of touch on a few different things. But I think it's always cool for people to understand the origin story. So in the beginning, there was Mark and Shane, and then there was Nomad. How did how did that brand come to life between the two of you? What's the what's the origin story of the brand itself? I guess, um, well, the origin story would be um, when I was about 12 years old, my old man's always been a waterman, uh-huh. really good body surfer, um, and he tried to encourage my mum to get in the water with him, which is, you know, always fun in games. Mm-hmm. Um, my partner doesn't really enjoy the water as much, so when I was 12, um, he bought her uh, a bodyboard for Christmas. Uh-huh. Um, and basically I just snabbled it straight away. It was yeah, right. just love at first sight for me pretty much. Um, so from there we started bodyboarding, you know, all the time. Um, yeah, Mark and I have always just had that passion for it. Mm. And yeah, after a while, like as you know, we were both had careers already, um, uh, that we're sort of heavily involved in. Mm-hmm. But we always wanted to do something bodyboarding, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we started a little hobby business, and that was Nomad. Yeah, right. And and how did you um coming back to your mum's board? What kind of board was it? Do you remember what type it was? It was <laughs> it was literally a Kmart special. It was mm. a one piece foam board. Yeah, right. Uh, with a like a a check pattern on top for grip. That was yeah, sure. With the glued in. Um, fins on on the bottom. Wow. Okay. foam. Yeah, really simple. You know, bend in half, bend straight back. So yeah, so I basically got that, and then twelve months later, my old man bought one for my two brothers. Yeah, right. Basically in the water from there on. That's funny. And so arriving at the name Nomad, like, how how did you get to that point? That what's the story behind landing on the name Nomad? Yeah, that that took a long time. Um, basically, we. I really like uh, the American, like Native American, you know, Aboriginal cultures, that sort of thing. And you sort of watch them with their traveling. Mm. And, I felt, and I felt like we were doing a lot of that. We were doing a lot of, you know, traveling up the East Coast, you know, searching for waves and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And I really felt that word described bodyboarders searching for waves really well. I really felt mm. like a real. You know, when I was growing up, I really liked, you know, Bullet and those sort of soul surfer type guys. Yeah. And I really wanted, you know, a brand that represented that sort of a rider. Mm. And I thought that word really described really what we were looking for. Cool. And so the name was available. You could register it. You, you started getting that kind of graphic design and everything done. If I remember correctly, it was, it was clothing in the very, very beginning, right? That was kind of yeah, the first step. That was the, the sort of... The passion to begin with um, mm. was the clothing type of thing. From from there, you know, from the clothing, it's sort of you, you start to meet people and people say, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? You get opportunities. Um, you know, I met Glenn Edwards really early on, um, shaper for unknown, uh, yeah, unknown bodyboards, and he really encouraged us to sort of, you know, start doing bodyboards, which was... Mm really good how did um i mean obviously the the backstory for me on this is as well as that i think i was one of your first riders that you kind of grabbed or who was the first did lackey get there first uh no like uh kiowa o'sullivan oh yes yes kiowa. first it, yeah, right. started inverted up on the gold coast yeah 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 um and then chris Clarkson on the northern beaches yeah yeah and then i think you were third from memory. okay there we go. Yeah, and yeah. so when did this this part of that kind of um, expansion of a team, you know, like kind of because that's kind of how how tricky was that to navigate in the beginning? Like what was it that you were looking for in terms of growing the brand at that point in time? Because this is the early 2000s Correct. Um, or it's the year 2000, right? That's yep. Yep. yeah. So like what what do you think the vibe was like around at that time and, and when you were growing the brand and bringing these riders in? Like what were you... 
what was the feeling like for you and Mark when you were kind of at that point at the early stages, but seeing some momentum start to pick up? It was really difficult. Like we had no experience in terms of, sorry, we, we had nothing. We didn't have a background, like we'd bodyboarded our whole lives, but we hadn't been involved at club level. Mm. Um, we really had a group of mates that we used to surf with every weekend, travel with, mm. you know, seas with, etc. So that that was our background. So we hadn't had that competition level type sponsorship and so forth. So when you when you start a brand, you think, oh, we've got to sort of promote it somehow. And that yeah, sponsorship type of thing was was completely new to us. So. Mm. To be to begin with, it was all suggestions from you know stores and that sort of stuff. And yeah. you know, what what I knew, like I, I had a really strong basis of who I liked and and who was out there type of thing because you know I was an avid um, you know Riptide reader and so forth. Mm. Um, so you know you knew all the names, knew all the faces, but didn't really know anyone in the industry. So mm. uh, to begin with, we sort of just you know, we got suggestions and we're sort of like grabbing whoever we could and whoever yeah. was keen to ride for us, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, it wasn't until later on that we really settled down on a direction we wanted to head and built, mm. a, built a team based around that. So when's what's that moment of settling down on that direction? Like, what's that all about? Like, what 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 were the ups and lows that led you to, a, to that point where you kind of went, okay... We've we've tried a few different things now along the way. Here's how we're going to project forward with this brand. What's that? What's that kind of situation look like? And when does that look like? I guess uh, it's funny that you ask that because I think there's there's two major things for me that sent us on that direction, and both mm. of it involve you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, here we go. All yeah, right. Go. <laughs> um, like two of those things really was. A photo shoot uh, we organised with you up at Foster. Oh yeah. Um, that we did with yourself, uh, Lackey, Manny yeah. Sturin, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Brendo Newton. Um, and I remember we, that. Yeah, we organised that, did that, um, and as part of that, uh, Brendo brought Mickey Smith along. Oh yeah. And I hadn't met Mickey before I didn't know anything about him. Okay. Um, all I knew, you know, for the couple of years prior in my head was I really wanted to create a film. Like, mm. grew up on the underground tapes. I love underground tapes and Strabi's work with that. Um, and I really wanted to go in a direction that, you know, I wanted to get into producing this film. Mm-hmm. And I had in my head sort of what it wanted it wanted it to be, um, sort of like an endless summer two for for bodyboarding. Yeah. And you know a real team sort of vibe trip. And while we're up there with you're staying at your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Brenda goes, oh, Mickey's Mickey's made a film, and like I had no idea who this guy was. Yeah. Um, I go, oh yeah, wouldn't mind seeing it. And I, I distributed your brother's film. That's right. Of that, um, so I'd had some experience distributing a, a, a bodyboard film. Um, and Mickey goes, oh yeah, put it on. Uh, and it was against the grain. Yeah. And that blew my mind. That film yeah. was like, this is exactly what I had in my head. I want to do. Mm. And a lot of things that sort of pushed me along the way is going is meeting someone that's done it before mm. even with nomad in the beginning we're at the 1999 uh nationals uh-huh which were held at ports in victoria oh yeah that's the one i won yeah <laughs> basically, <laughs> yeah, basically our, our local break mm. so and at that comp good memories there's, there's a couple of guys from croydon melbourne here who okay. were selling T-shirt, bodyboard T-shirts at the back of their car. Uh-huh. And I said to Mark, Mark and I have been talking about it for a while, and that went, you know, that was the driving point. It was like, if they can do it. Yeah. And then after meeting Mickey and seeing his film, and I, you know, I think that film's phenomenal, um, was like, well, if Mickey can do it, we can do it. Type of mm. thing. Um, so at that point, it was like, all right, we've got to 
start moving in that direction. Mm. The other sort of driving force was your trip to Hawaii. My trip to Hawaii? Yes. Which the, one? The pipe comp. Okay. Uh, where you missed your heat. Mm. Well, that was to Maui. Right, was that Maui? Yeah, that was the Maui one. Yeah, that was a... That's that's I mean that's a big moment for me as well of course but what what is it from your perspective? <laughs> so from my perspective, um, again I wasn't that into competition early on. Yeah. Um, I did get into it um, because of the team. Yeah. But I did feel at that point uh, when you had your mishap there. Yeah. That that wasn't for me to keep investing in. Yeah. You know, that disappointment that I saw you go through. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Have you discussed that on the podcast before? Oh, it's come up before. I mean, I think it's one of these things that, you know, I was just really lucky, um, to be honest, in that whole story around that because uh, it's really uh, definitive for me because I kind of just held on for a, a year or so afterwards just kind of floating around with it going like, I hate this, but I'll do it because these guys are supporting me. And I, you know, just kind of drifting, not really putting effort in and, you know, like not, not having a goal anymore, you know, like it was very, it was very um, destructive for my motivation. But, um, but I was really lucky that, um, that soon after there was a kind of like a, what's the word for it? Like a vindication that I wasn't like tripping out. I wasn't just some weirdo who just didn't turn up to his heat. There really was a phone message that wasn't updated because um, Sean Cooper and Michael Chappell, who were also on Hawaii uh, on Maui at the time for the comp, they didn't turn up to, to, to the event either that day because they used the same telephone link up to see if it was on before they drove the hour north to the North shore of Maui. So that only came out, a while after um i remember them saying yeah we didn't go either because we 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 heard it wasn't on it wasn't on so we didn't go and i was like shit like i was, I thought i was losing my mind a little yeah. bit you know but um but yeah i mean I, I totally get that um shift for you guys because you know like you, you think of all the money and it's still a problem today you know like you you look at all the money that riders have to spend to compete and and then you look at the the outcomes for the sponsors who are funding that. And it's pretty hard to justify that spend if you want to build no, a brand. It wasn't really, it's not the money though. It was okay. the loss of, you know, seeing a rider and a friend with a, uh -huh. loss, with a loss of power uh -huh. of being able to fulfill their destiny. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's sweet. It's, that's it's sweet. The way, it's the way I see it. It's sort of yeah. like, you know, yes, we're we're investing in you, but at the same time, like missing out on a phone call, which then you know results in a chain reaction. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty tough to watch someone go through. So yeah. after that was really a point where I felt like with the team we had to sort of chase our own destiny. Mm. It's definitely a way to sort of for me to view it, which basically yeah. resulted in us building a team. That led to Rome. Yeah, yeah, and I think, and I think that's really interesting. So, and I mean, it's a huge vulnerability, I guess, maybe in business, and maybe part of your job all the time over the last twenty years has been to kind of get as much control over your own destiny as possible, so you're not like vulnerable to things you can't control, um, so that you continue to grow and all that kind of stuff. So, taking it away from competition in bodyboarding is like that's a huge vulnerability because you know how many how many years is there a to be confirmed world tour which you know everybody kind of sits and waits for the final confirmation a month and a half before it happens and then they rush to get the tickets and you know it's a pretty gnarly yeah i don't i don't i think there might have only been a couple of years in all that whole scene where um it looked like it got some stability but you know as far as i can see since even coming back it's still that really on the edge of happening or not and then you're not really in control of what you want to do that year anymore you're very just waiting to hear what happens and then you react so it's um it's an interesting step so coming to rome with that kind of ramp up to production what were some of the kind of interesting steps in that process that kind of 
vindicated that you were on the right track with the brand? What 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 did you see or feel that that made you kind of understand? Yeah, this is the this is the direction that Nomad should be on now. Uh, I think it was more just my passion. Like uh-huh. after after the underground tape stuff, growing up with that as a kid, it, it was something I guess I wanted to fulfil anyway mm-hmm. myself. Um, and then once after meeting Mickey, we distributed the road mm. uh, for Bryce Thurston, yep. um, which led to a relationship with Bryce and Glenn, um, Thurston brothers. So uh, from from there, when once Glenn got on the team and Bryce could sort of say we 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 got Chris James on the team, yep. we had Lackey and so forth as well. Um, yeah, it was really a thing of Bryce was interested in filming for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was basically just coming up with a with an idea for the project, really. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, ended up being pretty crazy, really. When you, mm. in the end, we put up, you know, choppers at Lunas and. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did the budget blow out on that? Like, did you did you did you sink a lot of cash in that exercise, that, or was it? That was massive. Like, I went down and project managed that shoot myself just because you can say much funny (laughs) and it was such a wild thing to do like you know just to have sort of five or six people in the water um luckily it was in victoria down here so it's a little bit more controllable you know i was able to source you know the chopper guys and all that really easy but at the same time it was yeah like next level yeah (laughs) <laughs> is it pretty do you look back on it and go kind of like particularly when it comes to renting choppers um to film from i mean it's pretty wild to think that you know i mean it's been quite a few years now that you know just a drone would have done the job oh you know, like it's... if drones would have been you there, <laughs> <it'd> be amazing <laughs> but yeah it's, it's sort of like yeah it's it, that was such a crazy day in itself like you know we got chased out of town by the local servers and Oh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, did this happen at the same time as the kind of shift, like to situate this moment? Because I don't remember all the history so clearly in this period. But like, it was, was... probably when the IBA took off. Okay, you know, money got into that at that time. So it ended up being we sort of created. An alternative to the IBA is, is yeah. what I like to look at it. Um, yeah. You know, the IBA went huge at that time. They had, you know, comps everywhere. Yeah. It was really up to a rider to either follow that and mm. then year is gone because travel budgets and, and time away from home. So it was either do that or or free surf. Mm. And I think we really pushed the free surf. Yeah. Yeah. And the internet was kicking off too then, right? Like things were, YouTube views were becoming like a, that uh, was definitely. Prior to YouTube really taking off. Okay. Um, it's like DVD sales were still really good. Okay. All so, right. So uh, that was the business model still at that time. That's what justified that, that, that spend. That covered our ass in the back end of, yeah. for doing those sort of films. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that and, and Rome 2 were, Rome Two in particular was was a massive expense. So right, yeah. But were the DVD sales still there to get it back, or, or yeah, was that? Yeah, but basically it covered itself. So yeah, Rome was a gamble. The way I look yeah. at it, Rome Two was basically justifying, you know, justified after what happened with Rome One. Okay. Yeah. Moving forward from that point because i just think what's one of the interesting things about the journey for nomad and um aside from the kind of decisions to bring in different products along the way as you said that's just like partners that you talk to and they ask questions and you go yeah we can do boards or yeah we can do this and you also expanded out with other brands as well over time um to my understanding it's what you got custom x limited edition yeah so um, Mark and I founded Limited Edition. Yeah. Fins. We founded Attica Wetsuits. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do some distribution for Custom X here in Australia, as well yeah. as GT boards and number six. Oh, okay. So those as well. Jeez. All yeah, right. so we've done bits and pieces for everyone over the years. Like, And again, it's just creating relationships and having yeah. good friends in the industry, really. Yeah. That sort of result in that. So. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that... 
And then on top of that, we we purchased uh, function bodyboards in 2009 from Dave Tullin. Yeah, exactly. So these are all kind of like normal business decisions that any brand would make as they grow. Yep. Um, but the context, the timing of your growth is a really interesting moment in how to sell things. So you've kind of grown through this huge disruption where the internet went from being, you know, just a place to maybe look at some photos and, or, or you know, have an email account and, and have that type of communication to being this place with, you know, social media, you know, influencers, different approaches to marketing, zero return on investment, you know, when it comes to making a film and then selling it as a DVD, you know, that all obviously stopped at one point. Um, what has been your biggest learning over that period? Because whilst you've grown and continue to at least be here in the, in the industry, other brands that were much bigger than you have basically vanished. Um, how have you, what's your secret? How have you done it? I've got no idea, mate. I think, <laughs> I think Mark and I are pretty lucky that we've never fell at the top of the game type of thing. Uh -huh. it, it is, uh, you know, you're always chasing someone bigger, I think, yeah. in that respect. Um, we've always sort of lived in the moment and never been too nostalgic probably until this year. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely living in the moment and going, oh, we just sold something to a store, yeah. you know, and, and be happy with that. And they go, all right, well, then we're going to sell this thing. You know what I mean? It's it's just, you know, being enthusiastic, I think, um, more than anything, and just valuing the relationships you've got with all the retailers out there and, and everything as well. It's um, yeah. just got to, you know, keep happy. And honestly, this is better than what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, right. What were you doing beforehand again? What were each of you doing? Same background as you are, man. Like, yeah, that's what I thought. Furniture removals for 10 years. So, but, you know, when I say furniture removals, you know, I ran an international bond store. Yeah. Project managed massive fit outs for hotels. Yeah. That sort of stuff. Uh, Mark was IT manager. He, he had right. but he was an IT manager for a pre-press company, which again helps with all our advertising and all that stuff. So, you know, we sort of work really well together, sort of yin and yang. Yeah. I've got no idea what he does. He's got no idea what I do, but together we get it done. You know? That's cool. Yeah. That could be part of your secret. Yeah, possibly. But yeah, but you're just not invested in every little piece of the entire business all the time. Yeah. So there's literally like, there are very big differences between yourself and Mark when it comes to your roles and your skills and your interests. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think we want to hit one secret. I was always keen on doing the films, for example. Yeah. Um, he, he said it was too big a risk and right. know, so you know it was my passion for that but he's got you know passion for other things like all mm. this design work and all that sort of stuff so yeah yeah it's definitely a yin and yang between the two mm. which works really well so from my understanding at least experience was that in the in the beginning with the boards it was glenn edwards who was shaping the nomad boards in australia is that where production first started yeah on the boards? Okay. Um, Glenn was shaping for us out of uh, his Gold Coast at Burley Heads there. Yeah. There. Um, and was doing so, yeah, for years. It was, yeah. You know, With was, the shift overseas, like how did that kind of work for you? Because that was a big moment that kind of took place throughout that growth period for, for all of all bodyboarding brands. They kind of had to adjust to this reality of production in Asia and really figure it out. Um, how did you guys get there? Because yeah, that, again, you, that was you know pretty much Glenn again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I give Glenn a lot of respect. Like he he had a lot of uh, history in the industry prior to meeting us. Um, he worked for Rio Pipo and that back in the day. Yeah, that's right. And um, Evans went out on his own. Um, and basically, he got to a point he, like we were getting bigger. Than we ever thought we'd ever be. Yeah. Um, and so he suggested we go to Taiwan to start uh, shaping boards because that's where he was buying all his material anyway. So okay. material-wise, materials weren't going to change. Um, nah. And yeah, the quality out of there was just getting better and better. Mm. And that and that took you to the Agit. That's the 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 main manufacturer in Taiwan, is it? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's it's a it's not really much of a secret that boards are either made in Agit or they're made in Indo at the Brody factory where, you know, I think it's hub boards and Mez and um, science are kind of all coming out of Indo and, and you're coming out of Taiwan. Yep. How have you, um, you know, has it always been an easy pathway in Taiwan? Like, has it been straightforward? I mean, this company, Agit, they also make all those wave storms, right? So they, they know how to make a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Have you been over there much to check it out? I used to go every single year. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, right. The good thing about Agit is um, they've always got people on board uh, to, to better their own production. Um, uh-huh. They've always been collaborative and, and always listened to everything, all the feedback that you sort of get out of there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird because I've never dealt with Mez and, and the Brody. Sort yeah. Of, I've always had a good relationship with Agit, and that's mainly because, you know, guys like Mark Dale, uh, owner of Number Six. Yep. Um, he's a big part of that factory. Um, over the years, you know, Todd Quigley and Jared Gibson have all, you know, worked out of that factory as well, mm. and they've just been able to bring production right up to a standard that's, yeah, I think it's world class. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um. I mean, it's interesting because you. Like there is that competition between the two of them, right? Like you know that that, and and you're saying they've been willing to bring in people from, like expertise to make sure that the quality gets up. Because at the end of the day, I'm just assuming. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that top end bodyboards, for them, aren't their bread and butter at all. It's just this kind of thing that they do at a relatively small volume of compared to like their massive volumes of wave storms and other low-end boards is that kind of a fair assumption about that factory the day high-end boards body boards was a really big thing for them mm. they definitely you know grew because of that uh-huh um but then yeah the soft board and mm. the soft sub market really took off and that's yeah. that's really a key ingredient for them now yeah so, you know bodyboarding for them now isn't as big, but yeah, for for our relationship, it's yeah. It, mm. I, I, to be honest, I think all the things they've got into over the years has only benefited bodyboarding for us. Okay. Yeah. So their their expansion into softboards and and sups and things like that that's benefited the bodyboard production. Oh, absolutely. It's okay. it's it's uh, definitely produced better materials. Uh huh. Um, you know, production techniques, it's cut down on waste and so forth as well. All the techniques they've got, you know, building purpose-built uh, cores, like all their cores are blown separately. They're not built in long sheets where you cut them down. Uh-huh. It's sort of eco-friendly that they try and minimise as much waste as possible. Yeah. Um, so I think from that perspective, you know, that growth for them has only benefited, yeah, for sure. Mm. What what's um bit of a off the cuff kind of side note on this production discussion, but what do you think happened with the bodyboard brands when it came to this softboard revolution that really took place, you know, over the last I guess it's say you could say it's probably fifteen years or ten years. Like I remember when a guy named Andrew Pierce who used to work at Manta back in the day uh, and then he was Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Piercy was doing softboards way back out of Foster, and I remember seeing him going like, "Wow, you're making surfboards out of bodyboard materials? That's pretty wild." And like thinking, "That's not going to take off." You know, I was 19, didn't know anything, but you know, like he was making them back then, and and I just I just wonder like, did the bodyboard brands miss an opportunity a little bit to be a part of that big growth story in the surfboard space? Because we were all, you know we were using the materials, you know, like we were already making things with the same stuff. We just didn't make those other craft that could have been sold. Like, was there something missed or was there just never an opportunity there, do you think? Well, to be honest, I think certainly in Australia, a lot of the bodyboard companies uh, also have a softboard element to their business. Like yeah. uh, we, we do with, you know, Ryder here. Yeah. Uh, Certainly, World Bodyboards, you know, have have a brand. Manta had a brand that they were selling as well. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's a couple other companies out there at the moment that are also mm. distributing 
softballs as well as bodyboards. So yeah. I, I do think in Australia in particular, I'm not sure about overseas, mm. a lot of that softboard sales has benefited bodyboard companies. Okay, so it has actually come into the pie here. Yeah, but then at the same time, you are encouraging. Exactly, exactly. Which makes it very difficult. Absolutely. <laughs> Because like it's a pretty big revolution in in a sense and a huge disruptor to bodyboard sales. I'm assuming because you can take this surfboard in between the flags in Australia, which was one of the main selling points of a bodyboard or at least a parent going with the bodyboard in the beginning was that I know at least with my parents and many other kids, one of the one of the reasons why we got a bodyboard and not a, a fiberglass surfboard was because we could we could use them in the flags and be safe at the beach. But as soon as these softboards came along, that that argument was gone, and the the kid could get a surfboard shaped bodyboard and and then stand up in between the flags. So it kind of broke down that step that that kind of saw many of us, I think, stay on a bodyboard and see that it was a good craft to ride and enjoy. Absolutely. So yeah, has it been this kind of predicament for you with sales? Like, uh, has it been this challenge as a bodyboarder running a business and then looking on shit? we probably need to sell some of these softboards. Uh, that wasn't, or that is par- probably part of the reason we got into it, just because we could see there was that evolution taking place with surfing. But at the same time, it, it probably coincided with a dip in high-end bodyboards. Uh-huh. It wasn't, I don't think, anything to do with, you know, that sort of issue at the time. I don't think it was surfing taking off and bodyboard dropping, I think it was more that 2008, you know, drop in sales. It, it, it sort of hit sort of 2010 uh, in high-end boards. But right. we're only seeing the last two or three years of high-end board sales are actually starting to increase again. Okay. So, and that, this is directly related to the global financial crisis absolutely. in 2008. In Australia, I, I think, like, the GFC was 2008. I don't think it really hit here until 2010, 11, mm. you know, properly. Um, yeah. So we got that sort of lag time. But you can definitely see an increase in high-end bodyboard sales right now. Is that the only cause of the dip in bodyboard sales in Australia? I mean, it's it's not. Um, it's been pretty interesting to see. You know, because I, I was out of it at the time through these years, and and so you know there was seemed to be this period where Australian bodyboarders were earning money, sponsored, and and they had these bigger brands, and then everything did kind of seem to change from 2012, 2013 onwards. Everybody just lost all their sponsors. So it seemed. Um, yeah. I mean, is that just the global financial crisis, or what? You know, you've been here the whole time. Like what? What? happened to kind of cripple that Australian market a little bit? The, the catalyst for Australia uh, was probably the closure of Bodyboard and Surfco. Yeah. Um, Bodyboard and Surfco, uh, owned by some really good friends of mine, Mick yeah. Marina. Um, they, yeah, closed their shop. I'm not even sure what year it is now. It's probably 2013 or something like that. Yeah. Um, that sent ripple effects throughout the bodyboard industry here for sure yeah um yeah that was a tough time uh yeah, yeah when mick closed the store um it was sort of like the death of a good friend that you know seen that store that store mm. like they'd been there before we'd even started mm. um so yeah it was definitely a wake-up call i think for everyone in the industry at that time for sure what do you think that wake up call was though? You know, like was it was everyone too reliant on one retailer to get their boards to the market, or or what was the what were the main lessons out of that? Because part of what I've seen, interestingly, is that bodyboards sales online, like going purely online and kind of leaving the stores behind, hasn't really happened in bodyboarding as much as it's happened in other kind of um apparel or product categories um are we are we just really loyal do we do we try to like loyal to our own detriment or is it like what's going on well i hope we are loyal because i i you know truly believe especially in australia that 
if it wasn't for a lot of the really core bodyboard retailers, we wouldn't have anything. Like a lot of those core retailers, like Inverted, um, Bodyboard King, um, SWS, Emerald, um, you know, Shed Nine in Victoria, <clears throat> they all, if it wasn't for those stores, you know, they're supporting a lot of the bodyboard clubs or even running the clubs themselves. And certainly, you know, Bodyboard Surf Go was exactly the same. Like they were running two clubs at the time. Um, mm in two different states um and i think that grassroots thing i'd hate to see that loss because you know those retailers shut down so i mm. think it's imperative that everyone stays loyal to all these retailers and i apologize okay. to anyone else i missed it i miss someone Good well, no, no no but that, that's an interesting <laughs> insight that's yeah but that's an interesting insight because like you're saying that the a lot of the local clubs that are operational or only really operational off the back of these local retailers i think so yeah they're, mm. they're truly supported and those stores that are uh, basically a clubhouse mm. uh, those clubs i think um, guys go and hang out and just talk shit which mm. that's essential right? yeah <laughs> that, it's amazing how essential that is like to be able to hang out with other people that are like-minded as you mm. And, you know, I'm lucky. I, I sort of get to travel the whole coast every year except for this year because of the COVID thing. Mm. But uh, every year I'm on the road for like eight weeks and visit every single store. And every time I walk in, you see people sitting on the couch and just talking. And, mm. you know, it's just essential to our sport. Yeah, cool, cool. I mean, where do you see um, coming to the, you know, you've, you've, you've gotten to 20 years in the game, during that time, there's been some big players leave, you know, like, or they haven't left. Maybe they've just changed dramatically. And I'm thinking about your, your Mantas and Rio Pipos and, you know, even a brand like Fourplay was seemingly in the mainstream, you know, BZ, you know, there's so many big brands that just aren't really like they used to be. Um, how does that feel for you? Because you, you would have been growing up looking at all these brands as your inspiration and kind of appreciating them and what they were doing. And then suddenly you're in the game and they all die. Um, how did that feel at the time? And what do you put that down to? Or where, what do you put their decline down to in your own kind of experience? It's a massive question. <laughs> I know, I know. But, I mean, it's an interesting situation. I mean, yeah, you yeah. Two, two upstarts from Melbourne, or from Vico, yep. survive, you know, I mean, who would who would have thought? Would you have ever thought twenty years ago that the biggest brands would not be around and you would still be here? Like you know, my my first real board after that crappy board I talked about earlier was a Max Seven, you know. So, yeah. um, and my second board was a Seven SS. Like yeah. that that's just what it was at that you know when I was growing up. So I was heavily influenced in that brand. Um, and then, yeah, my, my first foray out of that brand was to buy a, a lethal custom man. So those brands that you're talking about are the brands I grew up on. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, I honestly don't know. I don't know how things have evolved and changed. It, like things, like you're saying, things have evolved and changed so quickly. Hmm. Um, and maybe it's failure to not adapt as quickly as that. Maybe... We just started at the right time. I mean, they had long periods of time that they were highly successful, mm -hmm. uh, and they—they, they, I don't know, they probably—they've lasted forty years. You know, mm. you know, they've probably been around forty years now. Like I've only been around half that time, so yeah. um, it's really hard to comment because in twenty years I could be exactly the same. Yeah, right? yeah, so, but I mean, it, maybe I mean, it's to do with your size, a brand, or um, yeah, maybe we've managed to keep it really tight. Yeah, um, with our company, you know, um, and, and, you know, I, I listened to your interview with Tom. Um, yeah. Ago. Yeah. And how many employees he had at the time, and that's and, what I mean. Well, mate. So it's you know, and we're operating completely different, sort of on a completely different level. So yeah. I guess yeah, it's it's hard to really say. Yeah, but I think there might be something in that. You know, like it, it seems like. Because I was, I'm going to get Terry Fleming on the podcast pretty soon. He actually lives in Foster now, so he's going to be pretty easy to catch. Yeah. But um, 
I, I was um before I was on the Nomad boards, I was with Manta. And I was even, I think I was on the clothing whilst riding for Manta still back then. Anyway, I was working in the factory at one point, you know, like every, I think every Manta rider. Oh, you there? You there, mate? Yeah, you still with me? Yeah, you dropped out. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. Sorry, the you're stuck. Sorry, go for it. Yeah, so it's just like I, I was I was kind of fortunate and or unfortunate enough to be there when that kind of first went down, like when it went kind of bankrupt and I saw the the factory and its its scale was just off the planet, you know, like it was it was literal football fields of production and storage and you know, it was it was immense. Um and and I I just would never have thought that something that big and strong and with all that history would, would kind of fade away so dramatically. Um, and, and then, yeah, to see you guys come up and be kind of small and nimble and not really have that massive growth at over a short period, like was there ever a period in your journey where you grew dramatically from year to year? Like, was there anyone time when you're like, Oh, hold on, Mark, this is getting quite real right now. Like, was there a moment like that? Periods of growth where you sort of, where, what's, what's going on? <laughs> we've, we've sort of, you know, leveled out the last couple of years, which I think is really good because there's yeah. only so much Mark and I can do as, as yeah. two people. Um, yeah. and, I, and, you know, there is that drive that you think, should we get more people involved and, and grow it further? Mm. But I think sort of what you're talking about before is sort of staying hungry and nimble as a small business has benefited us and mm. it's made us more flexible, um, which has definitely helped us, you know, get to 20 years without doubt. Mm. Mm. So looking for a wrap-up point, and I think it's kind of interesting and I doubt you're going to have much to say about it, but we're going to ask the question anyway because... <laughs> me. But... Um, well, I mean, you've you've gone this far. It's twenty years. You you you're not a nostalgic guy, yep. as you've said. You know, you've only just gotten nostalgic because people keep on asking you questions about your history now, and you're you're starting to look back on it and think about it. But um, what do you think the future looks like? If you're not nostalgic, I, I guess you're hopefully looking forward. Um, there were certain decisions you made along the way that that seemed to have helped you continue on your journey. I mean, how? What do you see the lay of the land in in the world with a coronavirus? Um, I've heard that sales are actually up, which is very weird. Yep. What, what's the lay of the land look like for you? Uh, certainly, you're looking at sort of where YouTube and, and that sort of stuff is heading, and you're looking at all those sort of platforms now, Netflix yeah. and stuff. So, yeah, you know, I'm still really passionate about film. Mm. Uh, and we're going to start pushing sort of our YouTube channel a lot more, the limited edition okay. channel a lot more. So in terms of growing that, um, product-wise, yeah, it's, we've got a lot of stuff in the works, but it's really just keeping everything as simple as you possibly can, I think, um, mm. while we're going through this corona thing right now. It's, yeah. So, so, so the flexibility on your side now isn't a growth flexibility. It's more of a stability flexibility. Like, what can we do to just kind of ride this little moment out and make sure it doesn't kill us? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I've become a bit more flexible as well. Like I said earlier about the IBA and not being really into that at the time. Mm. Um, I think having Lachlan on board with the team now has sort of changed my mind a little bit and mm. been trying to get back into that international competitive scene. Mm. Um, so I have been watching that a lot more um, recently, as you know, and you've been back involved in that as well. Yeah. Um, I'd really like to see, you know, that take shape. Mm. Uh, I'd like to see the powers that be with that sort of take a bit more interest in riders. Mm. Probably you know, their situations and being able to make it, you know, a, a tour that will be beneficial to everyone that's involved, yeah. riders and everyone else involved. You know, yeah. I, I think um, 
yeah, it's pretty tough when you look at, at you know, the amount of uh, competitions they've got at the moment. It, it makes it really tough for a rider, you know, 100%. To, to follow the entire tour, the entire year. It's uh, it's really not cost effective for them to do that. So it's, yeah, you sort of look at that and think, you know, where, where can that go? Because we're really involved. I'd really like to get back involved with that. Okay, with competition. Yeah, I think so. Like, yeah. you know, I can see, you know, you know, part of our team would like to do that. Um, mm. Certainly with, with Lockie winning the last, you know, three Australian tours. And yeah, he's a machine. From, from that, he actually thought he had a position given yeah. to the World Tour. There was a spot there, but then there was sort of a mix-up between the IBA and the ABA that sort of that position fell through. Um, but, yeah, I'd like, I would have loved to have seen him see and see what he could do, you know. Mm. I would like to see that too. And I think on that note, let's um, let's hope that things do get in order and that it is more kind of rider focused. I know that that's one of the biggest challenges I've noticed with it all since getting back involved is it's just completely uneconomical and it's just not feasible at all to really do a world tour with the current level of sponsorship and, and just the current kind of expectation of people when it comes to their, their brands and stuff. There's a lot of work they need to do to really keep that moving. Um, what do you, but I definitely look forward to that. What do you think of, um, a three a three competition sort of thing. I I'm I'm pretty open about being actually more most interested in a one world championship scenario, and I think it just makes even more sense now given COVID um, yeah. that people uh, I would rather see people compete domestically on national tours in every country and then qualify to a world championship event. Like for me, that is a pathway that's feasible. And it's also one that's way more inclusive. Um, I'm a bit of a socialist, so like I don't, I don't like the idea that, and I'm a, and I'm a complete example of this um, inequality is that I had a high-paying job, you know, earning up around the hundred grand Aussie mark per year, which was a remote working position, so I could travel on the APV tour like the like a high-paid professional bodyboarder, but without any sponsors that were paying me any money. Mitch was flowing me some boards, you know, that's basically it. Um, and I know that that's not fair, you know, like I know that it's only my good fortune that saw me able to be there. And I, I remember there was a the first year when I came back, you know, my goal was to crack the top 24, which seemed completely outrageous at the time because I hadn't competed in eight years or 10 years or whatever. And hadn't practiced much either, which was which was very challenging. And um, living in Sweden too, without the ability to practice much. But I knew that there was this system um, whereby you had to count one kind of four-star event plus your three Grand Slam events. So the four-star event was Sintra, um, which for me was a just a completely horrible place to go to, to grovel and try to expect a result. Um, but I knew that I had to go to get those points and it didn't matter if I finished dead last. I knew that if I go to Sintra, if I spend this money and go to Sintra, I'm, I'm going to pop, you know, it's definitely going to increase my chances of getting in without it. I'm definitely not making that top 24. So I spent 1200 euros, um, you know, in accommodation, food, flights. I flew to Sintra, got knocked out first heat. You know, at the bottom of the draw, knocked out first heat, and that result got me the points. Really, like I had a good finish at front on that year. I think I finished um thirteenth, which was great. But like the real result was Sintra finishing fifty fourth in yep. Sintra was the real result that got me into the top twenty four. So, and look, that's purely I bought it. It cost me twelve hundred euros. Like that's not cool. Yeah. So I, I don't like that. You know, like I don't like. That that was a yeah, system. someone to fly internationally for a qualifying event. And exactly. Exactly. We're not, we're not the WSL. No. We haven't got no. the money for that. It needs to be run basically like the way I run this company, just tight and yeah, yeah. You know, it's it can be done. It can be done. Maybe, but maybe, maybe, maybe we need you in the competition uh, world, Shane. Oh no, thanks. <laughs> I look at the way Forty used to do it though. Yeah. Um, 
those events, the skins and all that. And that's, yeah. That's like, you know, we were lucky enough to work with 40 for many years um, when we were sponsoring Shark Island and so forth. And yeah, the way he was doing it at the time was definitely the way. Shoestring. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that's like, and so, yeah, so that's why maybe three, like, sure, three events on a world tour, it's way better than six or seven. Um, three could work, but I still worry that if you had three different events around the world, it's still a huge economic cost. So, yeah, for me, and also I guess I just look at, like, the golden days for me in Australian bodyboarding was when pretty much none of the top riders were competing on the world tour. They were all in the Australian tour. And you might remember some of those days. I'm not sure if you went to any of the comps in like 98, 99, but like that was, and even in the year 2000, some of those comps were like crazy. The level, like we went to the Yorks Peninsula in South Oz and we had a Moray Pro and it was, it was nuts. It was, it was stacked. It was like, the, the most competitive event I reckon I've still been in. And um, and that was because everyone was competing domestically. So I think when you have a world tour that draws people away, their, their local tours suffer. And I'd rather see those riders... Like, I'd rather compete against Lachlan Cramsey and try my luck there against these guys here to qualify to a world championship um, somewhere else. And I think... And I probably wouldn't make it now, but that's okay. Like, I, I still think it's the best thing for the sport. So, yeah. It's funny that, like, I'd love to see, you know, I was on the ABA board for a little while mm. and um, was going to a lot of the comps last year. I went to quite a few of the comps because my son started competing. Yep. Um, and, yeah, went in one of those. I actually entered one of those events as well. It was a bit of fun. Um, but I was always shocked that, yeah, we can't get those guys there. And there's plenty of cool guys around. Literally around, yeah. It's, it's like guys are too scared they're going to lose. So yeah. don't bother turning up. It's all like, just go and enjoy yourself. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's an interesting problem because there, there is like, you know, like I, I went and competed at the Gold Coast Bodyboard Club event, you know, a month and a half ago. And, you know, like it, it was fun. And, and, you know, it was good practice and, you know, there's still those small rivalries, you know, like I wanted to beat Mitch, you know, I didn't want Liam O'Toole to beat me, you know, like it was kind of like, you know, you got these little little things you still want to achieve and um, they're still very effective, but who cares as well? The sausage sizzle was fun too. Like, you know, it also doesn't matter. Like, but... Well, it's funny because, you know, I said earlier we weren't involved with clubs or anything like that, but mm. in the last six years, Mark and I have got heavily involved with yeah. the club here, the Mornington Peninsula Bodyball Club. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we've been competing and you yeah, just have an absolute ball with all the crew. It's like you're just hanging out with people that are like-minded and why wouldn't you want to hang out with them? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I think that's a nice little positive note to step up uh, to, to wrap this one up. Oh, yeah? I've got one little... Oh, you got the outlaw. The outlaw. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> That's the first one. Uh, my signature hasn't changed much since then. So you still got one. That's sick. I got one. It's, it's actually the one from the 2004 Shark Island. No Shark. way. So it's signed oh. all the crew. Oh, wow. Signed. So, epic. Yeah. That well, is epic. The outlaw. See that? The outlaw. <laughs> Getting your shit for that? Nah, yeah, some people still call me the outlaw. They they make fun of me around Foster. I absolutely apologise for that. No, 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 it's fine. I can handle so much criticism. It's so <laughs> you gotta have a big ego to do that. Um, no, that's cool. Well, look, thanks. Like, I'll before, like, well, I'll hit stop record in a second and we'll have a yarn. But like, you know, for the record, thanks for everything you've done for bodyboarding. For me personally, you know, it was a good it was a good moment for me to have a a, a couple of guys see something in me back then and kind of ask me, you know, jump on board and let's do something cool. And, you know, that's the only place I've ever had a board model was with Nomad. And yeah, people still remind me every now and then they send me a little image of a Kirkman model that they've got in their garage or whatever, which is, which is fun. So no, thank you for all that. And I think a lot of people who've, who've been around to watch the Nomad story over 20 years can, can also probably, um, definitely give a big thanks to you guys for everything you've done for the sport i appreciate it mate. i appreciate your friendship over all the years as well yeah. mate. We've um, all, you and i've always managed to keep in contact over the years yeah, and it's, yeah. It's really good. yeah sweet all right i'll hit stop record 
Thank you, Shane, Britain, and congrats to Nomad on this big milestone. Thanks for having me on, mate. Cheers. The book, 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 the